Welcome, everyone. Most of you know I've been following um, Ajahn Sumedho's book, The Mind and the Way, and we're on Chapter 10, which is Cleansing the Mind. And this is in the section of the book that's about formal sitting practice. So that's an interesting term, and I think it's, it's worthwhile just reflecting on what does that mean, to cleanse the mind and... You know, it's so easy in practice to interpret meditation practice in line with our normal mode in life. And so when we hear something called cleansing the mind, it's easy to understand that as if, you know, we see, oh my God, my mind's a mess, and i got to go in there and get rid of the, you know, all the worry and all the judgment. i got to clean it up. And... You know, maybe in a very superficial sense that's true, but it's not very practical instruction. The cleansing process is a little bit more subtle than that. So I want to start by talking about two themes in meditation practice, and most of you have heard about these two themes, but it's it's a good thing to reflect on as you're practicing in moments, but even uh, better after you've sat to reflect on your practice in in light of these two qualities or these two um, aspects of what we're developing. So the Pali words are vipassana and samatha. Vipassana usually is translated as clear seeing or insight, and samatha is synonymous with the word samadhi, which you might have heard of before, which usually means the cultivation of tranquility or calmness. And these two these two concepts or these two qualities of practice, aspects of practice, have a lot to do with the cleansing process. So we're cleaning the mind through the development of tranquility and clear seeing. So we're actually not, it's not about changing the content of the mind, although the content of the mind might change dramatically. But the cleansing process isn't about changing the content of the mind. It's about developing calmness and clarity, brightness, that alertness, that clear seeing, and tranquility. And they really, they really arise together usually, although they can get a little out of balance at times where we have more tranquility and not very much clearness, clarity, and so then we tend to go unconscious. Or we have a lot of brightness but not enough tranquility and we tend to be critical and judgmental and in a hurry, impatient. So uh, what we're doing is we're going to develop the tranquility. This is sort of what we usually emphasize when we first sit down, is we just see that the mind is agitated, it's not relaxed, and so we just understand, just through the process of trial and error, understand what leads to the calming of the mind. What is conducive to peacefulness and tranquility? This would be, you know, this is an important skill to understand. I think even little babies have to figure this out. You know how it is as kids. We had our a mindful parenting group this afternoon, the second Sunday of the month and uh, or third Sunday of the month if we can't. third Sunday of the, is it the third? second Sunday of the month I can't remember 
But anyway, they met this afternoon, and I was there. <laughs> so I know what happened today. And Isabella, one of the little girls, was running. She tripped, hit her head, kind of her side of her face as she was falling. And, uh, you know, she lost it for a while. And one of the things that we observe as kids get a little older is they develop a capacity to calm themselves down. Because if, if they don't, then what happens is when they start to have a tantrum or start to get upset, their being upset is the cause for being more upset, right? This sort of build up. Those of you who have been parents who know this, it can kind of escalate, escalate, escalate. And then it's like the child doesn't know how to de-escalate. Some of you know that Steve Burt, a good friend of ours, one of the longtime practitioners and leaders at the center, had a very serious motorcycle accident last Friday, uh, a week ago last, a uh, week ago Friday, so about eight or nine days ago. And uh, they just, over the last few days, taking, the, taking him off of the ventilator. And it's that same sort of, uh, like how, when we're on the edge, there's this part of the mind, I mean, this is my projection as I observe Steve and observe the, the staff there trying to wean him off of this machine. And evidently, this is always a problem for people who've been on a ventilator for a period of time. Um, it's hard to get them off. The body sort of doesn't uh, want to lose it. I mean, it, it's both irritated, but doesn't want to lose it. And it's the same sort of, like how that tension that arises in that transition, how, how does the mind learn to de-escalate? Because when fear comes up, we tend to react to the fear. It tends to build the energy. We keep reacting, which builds the energy. Instead, when pain or fear or any sort of afflictive state arises, we, we need to relate in a different way. And this is really the essence of samatha practice, is we're not taking the normal hooks that are arising in the moment. Like something enticing happens, like a, a sound outside that's really interesting. It's not that the mind doesn't notice that sound, but it's not taking the hook of hearing the sound and then wanting to think about it or evaluate it or analyze it or compare it to something you've heard before. Or somebody's moving a lot next to you. It would be really easy to create a story like, that person must be a beginner. They should take the beginner class before coming to Sunday night or, or something like that. Or I wonder if they're okay. So we could sort of take the bait and run with it. Or we have a memory and then we could run with that. So there are any number of a kinds of hooks that can arise. And it's just a question if that arising condition in the mind or arising condition in our body in terms of a sound or sensation whether that's the cause for this escalation or whether that can be a cause for de-escalation. De-escalation happens naturally. Things naturally settle if, it's not, if the mind isn't agitating itself. This is a great principle. This is why it's actually possible to practice. It is the, the natural... Um, it's like gravity, you know. The natural way of the mind is to settle. And the only thing, it seems like it's the opposite. The only thing that's in the way of that natural settling towards calmness and peacefulness is the habit energy of taking the hook and running with it. 
conditions. It's the mind's habit to react to conditions that keeps the energy, the agitation building in the mind. So the, the initial part of cleansing the mind is just learning to calm down, which means that even though we're alive, and because we're alive, there are going to be all kinds of conditions arising, conditions in the mind in terms of images and thoughts, conditions in the body in terms of sounds and smells and tastes and tactile experience. There are going to be conditions. As long as we're alive, there's a stream of conditions. And the question is how we're relating to those conditions. Are those conditions the cause for escalation, agitation? Or the in not reacting to them, are we allowing the natural process of settling to occur? And it's so neat to see this. Like <clears throat> for those of you who practice for a while, you really get this. Even with a few moments of the mind connecting and sustaining attention with the breath, which means we're being with the ordinary breath without reacting to it, without trying to make it different than it is, but just letting the breath be the breath in the body. Just a few seconds of that, we notice the natural settling. So be observant of that, because what it does is it develops confidence that it's not like I, Mark, have to somehow slash and burn my way to calmness. You know, I have to, in a sense, like impose my will. I will not be agitated. I will not think about that. I will not judge. I will not remember. I will not plan. You know, all of that <clears throat> sort of willing is stressful and agitating. And when we do it anyway, it's really disturbing. Then we start to hate ourselves or feel like a failure, like we shouldn't be doing the practice. So when we see how simple it is and how it's not even personal, how natural it is that the mind settles when it's not being disturbed, then it's like, oh, it's like I can trust this. All I have to do is not react. All I have to do is wake up to how it is, like with the breath and the body, and for a few moments of just being with the breath, I observe that settling process, or being with the sound. We observe how everything settles down. <clears throat> the word samadhi, uh, which is uh, synonymous with the word samatha, they have different, the, the words aren't related, but the, the meaning of the word is the, very similar. But they both have the sense of the coming together or unification of the mind from agitation and distraction and dispersal to coming together fully in the present moment. And to be really here in the present moment means uh, the mind isn't agitated. Agitation is the same as scatteredness. <clears throat> it's sort of a, um, a flitting about or not. The mind isn't landing. It's, it's uh, in its... Uh, agitated state. So when we come together, when we're not taking up any of those hooks or getting caught by any of those hooks, running with any of those hooks, then there's a natural coming together or a natural settling. And this isn't the end of practice. This is just the beginning. This is just like what gets us in the game. <laughs> We're not even in the game until there's a little bit of settling. In a way, uh, we could say we're not 
fully human until the mind has collected itself to some degree. Before that, we're simply human robots, right? Because what we're doing is we're reacting, we're living a life of reactivity. And that reactivity is a little bit like being a robot. It's something that's been programmed. You know, we've developed this conditioning, this habit energy through causes and conditions. And we're simply, buttons are getting pushed. We react in the way that we've been conditioned to react. And then something else happens, and we react to that in the way we were conditioned to react. And then something else happens, and we react to that. And we're not only reacting to external experience, but every time we react, that is... That's the next thing we react to. We react to our reactions. And you can see what a closed box this is, or closed loop this is. And this is basically what happens until there's a settling. And then the reason it changes when there's a settling, and this is sort of starting to shift us now from samatha to vipassana, from the practice of calming, coming together, unification of the mind and heart, to understanding, really Vipassana is more about understanding, sort of um, a transformation in how we understand the way it is. So there's the calming, and the calming allows for a deepening or a transformation of how we understand the mind, how we understand the way it is. And so as things get calm, then what will naturally happen within this calmness is conditions will continue continue to arise. So now the mind is sort of relaxed, calm, here in the present moment. And even here in the present moment, things happen. There are sounds, there are sensations, thoughts still will arise. Unless the mind is deeply concentrated, still thoughts come and go. Emotions come and go. But the mind has some Teflon. Because it's calm and tranquil, it's less reactive. And because it's less reactive, then when those conditions arise, which they will arise, right? Those mental and physical conditions arise in the present moment, there isn't an immediate reaction to them. So because we're not immediately reacting to some mind state or some thought, or some physical experience, then we get to see it. The mind knows that experience instead of reacting. So in a way, we could say there's a choice. One is there's sort of a fork in the road. In every moment when there's a, an experience, there can be uh, an immediate reaction to the experience, a sort of a habitual conditioned reaction to whatever it is that's arising. or there can be, because of a certain degree of stability or calmness, the first thing is there could be a knowing that this is happening. See, it's very different than immediately reacting to it. There is a sense, there's a quality of knowing, ah, this is happening. This is happening. This is happening. And what this allows, this is what we call Vipassana, our insight. Then we get to have the experience that conditions arise, and conditions cease. Thoughts come, thoughts go. Sensations arise, sensations cease. Sounds come, sounds go. And all of a sudden, 
we understand our stream of experience, this unfolding stream of experience that we all have, we our understanding of it, how we understand it, it changes. If we're on, if we're on that that fork of reactivity, then the way we understand everything that's arising in our lives, in our moment, moments experience, we understand it as this is my experience. That's my thought. I'm hearing that sound. So where the reactivity arises out of a self-centered relationship to everything that's arising in the moment. And so we just react to it from that self-centered place. So all of our habit energy is woven around this view that this is happening to me. This is my life, and it's happening to me. And our reactivity, our reactive patterns really flow from that particular view. With Vipassana, with insight or clear seeing, we're seeing the conditions come and go in a more impersonal way. Even, even thoughts are seen in a more impersonal way. That thought, that emotion is just coming and going. Due to certain causes and conditions, the thought arises and it passes. That sound of the bird is arising and passing. The sensations in the body are coming and going. Pain in the knee arises and passes. The next moment of pain arises and passes. It's sort of a, a, un, a, a ceaseless or endless flow coming and going of experience. Lawful, impersonal, conditioned experience coming and going. So the ultimate cleansing of the mind that Ajahn Sumedho is pointing to in this chapter is cultivating enough stability, enough calmness and tranquility so that we see that there's a choice between reacting, living blindly like a robot in our reactive patterns and seeing this other possibility which is understanding that things are coming and going. And the ultimate cleansing is to let things come and go no matter what comes and goes. So in a way it's like not being knocked off of this way of being. The way of being that allows everything to come and go. The most beautiful, powerful, uh, enlightening experience, we allow it to come and go without any attachment. The most despicable thought, the most horrendous memory, we allow it to come and go. No matter how boring and flat the experience is, we don't react to it. We just allow it to arise and pass and arise and pass as if it were never to go away. Like we're in this sort of mental, emotional desert. And it's like every habit energy in the mind, body is screaming, do something, Mark. This can't be a practice, you know. But we just allow, allow the experience to be. And we allow the not liking of the experience to be. And the doubt, like let's say we have doubt that we're practicing correctly, we allow that to be. Arise and cease, arise and cease. So the, uh, you know, when we talk about Vipassana as insight practice, and so this is, we actually, in the West, we refer to this Theravada Buddhism that's come from places like Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka and Cambodia and Laos. This this old, um, uh, this old tradition in Buddhism, we call that tradition here in the West vipassana or insight meditation. 
And so what it's really about is we're having this insight that as I'm describing, and it changes our way of relating. It's like uh, our view transforms because we're not, uh, even though all of our habit energy is sort of telling us to kind of come back to that self-centered view, sort of take a stand, clean up my life, take a hold of what I like, push away what I don't like. We're not letting that stance, that view operate. We're using the calmness and the clarity to cultivate a different view, the view you could call this view, the view of letting go or letting things be or allowing things to be or not clinging, not clinging to anything. The Buddha, in, in, in some very pithy statements, summed up the his practice that he taught. You know what what allowed him to free up his heart, as he taught that for 45 years in India and in what is now India and Nepal, way back when, 2,600 years ago. He summed up his practice as not clinging. That's the essence of the path he taught: not clinging to anything whatsoever. This is the essence of practice. That's all we have to learn about or understand. That's all we have to practice and that's all we have to integrate into our life is not clinging to anything as self or allowing everything to be. This is what allows for the freedom in our hearts, meaning the perfection of wisdom and compassion, is this process of not clinging to conditions, the conditions of the present moment. And you know, the word conditions just means everything that's being experienced. So the, when we use the word the conditions of the present moment, you could say the world. It's fine to say the world. It's the same thing. It's like all the mental, physical conditions of the present moment, that's what we're allowing to be. So you see, it's very different than being an ordinary human being. Right? Because an ordinary, as an ordinary human being, we're not allowing conditions to be the way that they are. Now, there's a little trick here because when we hear that, we go, well, my God, I'll never get there because, you know, I'm Mark and I do have preferences. You know, I don't want you guys to be humiliating me or I, I don't want, you know, people to hate me. I want people to like me and respect me. You know, I want to be treated nicely. I don't want this room really hot. I want it cool. I don't want my body to hurt. So we, we hear this this sort of not clinging to any conditions. But it, it doesn't mean that uh, it doesn't mean that somehow we have to strip away the preferences in the mind. The mind has its preferences. We like it cool and not hot and humid. So even the wanting the room to be cool isn't grasped at. So we're not grasping at that thought or that, that impulse to want the room to be cool. We're not grasping at it in terms of like indulging in it. Like, yeah, I really do want the room to be cool. And what can I do to make the room cool? And we're also not repressing it like, oh, I shouldn't be wanting the room to be cool. I'm a Buddhist. I should just allow things to be. So we're not getting caught in either of those two extremes. And this is why it's tricky, because we hear a talk like this and we think, oh, so I have to somehow renounce everything. 
I have to renounce this body and all of its wants and desires. I have to renounce this thought, these thoughts. But we don't. It's really a special, you know, the Buddha called it the middle path between repression and indulging. So this is really the way to understand non-clinging. And this is the cleansing process Ajahn Sumedho is talking about. We're walking this path between indulging in our the conditions of the present moment. Indulging means that like something comes up, like feeling hot and humid, and we take it personal. We get identified with the experience of being hot and humid, and we construct a story about somebody like me who doesn't like being hot and humid. Or we construct a story about some other, like, well, why didn't Mark turn the air conditioning on earlier? Or whatever. So that's called indulging in the experience. Repressing is like we feel the heat and humidity and we don't like it. So first there's the condition, you know, feeling the heat and the humidity. And then there's the other condition arising in the moment, which is the not liking of it. And then we want to repress that. Like we think, oh, I shouldn't be not liking this. I should just accept it. So that's called repressing, like pretending that we don't, uh, pretending like we're not disliking it, you know. Oh, it's okay. It's fine. <laughs> sort of a Minnesota trait, right? Oh, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Garrison Keeler, if you've ever listened to Prairie Home Companion, he always makes fun of Lutherans in part, but Minnesotans more generally, are sort of this uh, Minnesota nice, you know, not complaining, which is just a form of repression. You know, pretending we're okay, pretending we're equanimous, pretending we're generous, pretending we're kind, pretending we're patient. So it's not about repressing our conditioning, and it's not about indulging in our conditioning. Repressing the conditions, indulging in the conditions. It's something different than that. So this is why... The transformation, the cleansing, what we're cleansing or purifying is our view, ultimately. It's true. In spiritual life, it's, there is a certain amount of purifying our behavior. No doubt about it. It's really useful you know, if we're involved in a lot of stealing and a lot of negativity and hurting others and hurting ourselves. It's really good to purify our behavior. It's really good to purify our minds. That ultimately, the spiritual path is about purifying our understanding. This is ultimately what we're cleansing. Because even if I purify my behavior, I'm still susceptible to a lot of suffering. Like even if I'm avoiding stealing and harming others, I can still be quite uh, afflicted in my mind with worry, with fear, with craving. So real freedom and peacefulness comes from purifying our understanding. And that's this middle way. As we move through life, not indulging in experience and not repressing experience. So we're staying really close, you know, powerfully, deeply honest about how we are, how the heart is, how the mind is in the moment, not needing to repress our negativity and not needing to indulge in it, not getting attached to our wholesome aspects, and not denying it. So we're aware, like when we're being, when the, the wholesome conditioning has been triggered, and all of a sudden there's a lot of patience or gratitude or kindness 
or clarity. We're not indulging in it thinking, oh, you know, my practice is really working. I'm so wise. And we're not in denial of it. We really see this is a beautiful, wholesome condition in the mind. We really see that clearly without the indulging. So we're not repressing it, but we're not indulging in it. And same with any negativity. We're not indulging in it. Oh, I'm so bad. I should be punished. And we're not repressing in it, repressing it, pretending we're not. That's not happening. That there isn't anger when there is. And it's such a relief, right? Because then we start getting, this is the flavor of insight, this path of not clinging. We really get that the freedom the Buddha taught and other saints have taught it. It isn't about being different than who we are. It's not about being a different being than who we are right now. It's about being free in this life as it is, as it already is. See, it's much more inviting, isn't it? I mean, we could either think about our spiritual life as like, we're here, bad, and we need to get to the top of the mountain, which is good, you know, and there's this arduous journey up the mountain, and there are all these demons, you know, trying to trip us up. And that's normally how we kind of, in a simplistic way, think about spiritual life. And here, with insight, the turning is much more radical. It isn't about being a perfect mark, sort of cultivating the utopian mark who never gets angry or who never has any negativity rising. It's really about realizing the possibility of not indulging and not repressing whatever the conditions are in the present moment. So allowing the conditions to be. So now let's say I have a lot of negativity coming up. And uh, let's say I'm practicing correctly, which means there's enough stability, enough tranquility, and enough clarity. And so because of that, I'm not taking the road of reactivity, but I'm taking instead the road of allowing things to be. So the negativity arises. Let's just say it's anger. Anger arises, and I'm not indulging in the anger. That means I'm not taking it personally, and I'm not repressing it. Well, then what do I notice? I notice that the anger arises, and because I'm not reacting to it, I notice that it ceases. And that seeing that it arises and ceases confirms the view that it's not personal, that it's not self. Conditions aren't self. Now, if I react to it, I'll never see that anger is not self. But if I'm not reacting, I see the anger come and go, and then I see it as an impersonal condition in the mind. I don't have to take it personally. Now, it might get triggered again. Right? Let's say I see the same thing that triggered it the first time. I see it again. You know, that person is the trigger. And the anger arises again. And I don't indulge in it. And I don't repress it. So I just see it coming. I see it going. I see it coming. I see it going. So this is a different understanding of an enlightened being. So instead of thinking about an enlightened being as somebody who doesn't have anger, we think of an enlightened being as somebody who has anger from time to time, but doesn't indulge in it and doesn't repress it. Even the Buddha, you know, as a legend at least, 
maybe it's maybe it's true. I mean, we'll never know unless you're somehow psychic. But you know, as a legend, the Buddha was fully enlightened. Yet, even you know, even in the in the tradition in the Pali Canon, you know, the recorded talks of the Buddha, he often, many many times refers to the presence of Mara. Some of you know Mara is sort of the personification of negativity in the Buddhist tradition. And so Mara would arise in his mind. Those unwholesome conditions got triggered and they would arise in his mind. Now, because the Buddha was well-practiced, whenever Mara arose, whenever any negativity arose in the Buddha's mind, he would always know it. So... Even in the tradition, they, they haven't idolized the, idealized the Buddha as being somebody who doesn't have any negativity, doesn't have any anger, doesn't have any greed. It's the way it's described, the way he described himself, is these forces, even with all the work that he did, developing, purifying his personality, still there was negativity. But when it arose, he didn't indulge in it, and he didn't repress it. So then he just saw it as an impersonal condition coming and going. And it wasn't taken into action, into words or action. It just arose and ceased in his mind. And if it gets triggered again, then it arose and it ceased. And this is the cleansing process. Now, in that process of seeing the negativity come and go, it's not getting watered, so it will come less frequently. So... The practice does, in fact, purify our personality. We become less negative the more we do this practice. But the freedom isn't dependent on becoming less negative. The freedom is dependent on not getting confused when negativity gets triggered. Non-confusion means we're calm enough to see that this negativity that's gotten triggered is just a condition in the mind that's coming and going which means we're not reacting and not indulging. Does that make sense? So let me take some questions here. I have a few more thoughts I can share, but it might be good just to reflect for a few minutes on how you've seen this manifest in your life, successfully meaning like you really felt there were moments where you weren't indulging, weren't repressing pleasant or unpleasant states, and times when you did get caught, and uh, how that unfolded. Alexis? So could you say that last part again? Part of the bedding. Oh, benefits, okay.
sharing that and and you can just see that sometimes it may be a more seemingly more about you but even then like let's say the HR people know you and you've had some conflict in the past and there's a sense that they want revenge or something like that so even in that case where on the surface it certainly would look personal even that though is impersonal too because even that conflict was just the dynamic of impersonal conditions you know it's like they were having a bad day and you were having a bad day and then this conflict arose or whatever it was so we can we can see even times when on the surface it's it really is personal it, it's still the unfolding of impersonal conditions but that's that's a little harder but we can even look there and see that uh, even when your partner hates you or your brother or sister hates you and you hate them that that whole feeling that's also impersonal even so this is that the trick is when we observe the experience in the present moment the conditions in the present moment through the filter of the story like about my brother and me or my sister and me then we're on this side of that that fork right we're reacting because we've already indulged in the condition like the pain of being angry we've indulged in it because indulging means we've created a story about it and in order to not indulge in it and to not repress it means we have to be with the rawness of the pain before the story and that's what's impersonal the story is absolutely personal so if we're on the level of the story don't tell yourself it isn't personal because the story is personal <laughs> You know, the story we have about the pain, that's personal. But if we can get back to the pain, that's not personal. That's just pain. That's just a condition in the present moment. Pain in the heart, heat, or whatever that anger feels like as a present moment experience. That's just an impersonal condition. So before the reactivity, but that's not so easy. But I really like what you said because I think it's like a a very accessible example of how our practice works in our lives. Thanks, Alexis. Hey, Rini, would you turn the lights on just a little bit? Any other thoughts people have? Please. Hi, Rini. Um, I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the 
Yeah. Well, it's a great question, and, and I think the answer isn't so much trying to figure out what the appropriate response is, but to tease out the indulging, the identification, and to tease out any fear that leads to repression. So it sounds what you were describing is more on the side of repression. It's like maybe you're afraid, like you're seeing something's wrong, you're seeing something needs to be done, but for whatever reason, you're afraid to take action, to speak up. And so here, it, it's more about not reacting to the fear, but being willing to just feel the fear. And then if you are willing to feel the fear, then it won't get in the way of you responding appropriately to the moment. So this is, a, this is really the, a, a neat thing about the practice is we don't have to figure out what to do which is a real relief because that triggers a lot of self-centered thinking. If we feel we're responsible for doing the right thing in our lives, making like think about how many choices we have to make about partners, about raising kids, about our job, about how to be a good citizen, about taking care of our bodies, our health. It's just like no way to know the right answers. You know, Should I marry this person or become partners with this person? I mean, how do we know that? There is no way to figure it out, and we'll drive ourselves crazy if we take that personally. But what we definitely can do is we can pay attention. We can cultivate some degree of tranquility, clarity, and in that, that balance with that balanced mind and heart, we can tease away the fear and tease away the attachment. And doing that, we just allow ourselves to respond. So we give up trying to figure out how to respond, and we just let ourselves respond, but we're on the lookout and not letting ourselves respond with greed or anger or repression or by attachment. And uh, so it's sort of a radical trust that we'll respond more appropriately if we pay attention to this, you know, not getting out of the middle way or returning to the middle way, and then just let things unfold as they do. Taking the hands off the wheel. Paul? That, that is a big issue that comes up with me as I'm sitting. Am I doing something wrong by letting go of this? What would it be like to let go of this anxiety or this worry or this perceived failing? That, that is a powerful thing. 
our basic attachment which is this fearful stance in life is sort of our basic stance or basic view and so you see that this transformation of view or the purification of view is from that congealed tight stance to an empty stance meaning the heart's released in the moment we're moving to an understanding where the heart is completely released undefended so it's a, it is. It's a radical turning from our habitual way. Yeah. Hi. So far, the topic of discussion has been mostly about negative emotions. Mm-hmm. But how can you think of an example or some words about how how this how positive emotions fit into this in terms of indulging like joy, you know, not wanting to indulge yeah. or repress joy because I'm sure it's the same thing. I'm just having a harder time. Well, yeah, I mean, just think about, um, you know, a time that you've been happy, like maybe seeing your, is it your daughter? Do you have a daughter? Yeah. So seeing your daughter sort of learn something she hasn't been able to do before. You know, she just learning new words or some new activity. And uh, and it's just a, it's just a beautiful experience to be there with her. And you feel the energy of that joy. And so then it's the same sort of dynamic. It's very easy for that energy, to, to be, for the mind out of, out of its habits, to project a story with that, like, I am so happy you're in my life. You know, don't ever leave me. Or, you know, I, I hope you're always safe. Or, you know, and so that's indulging in the joy. We're, we're taking the joy and we're creating a story about somebody uh, who is receiving the joy, somebody who is joyful. But we don't, the actual condition of joy isn't somebody who's joyful. It's just joy. It's just the energy of joy. That's actually what's happening. But if we indulge, then we create something extra. We can create a sense of somebody who is joyful and then immediately then we'll react to that reaction by wanting to protect the joy for that somebody who's receiving it and on and on. Or we'll repress it, like I'm not worthy of this joy. You know, uh, it this can't be happening to me. You know, there must be something bad here. You know, if someone's going to take it away, or you know, and we just start kind of not wanting to receive this joy. It's like no, it's, it can't be trusted, and we repress it one way or another. It's harder to practice with joy than with pain. 
we usually talk about the, the negative or the difficult first because it's easier to practice. Generally, when things are joyful or pleasant, it's like any practice instincts we have, they just go out the window because it's like, I'm feeling good. Why the heck do I need to practice? You know, and so we just we figure that when things are going well, we should just relax and let our life be. But we want to we want to sort of bring our practice there just as much. And it is more challenging because of that habit of not paying attention when things are going well. We have an incentive to pay attention when things are bad or difficult. We don't think we have an incentive. We actually still have an incentive when things are going well to pay attention. We just don't realize it. We're deluded by the pleasantness. Tom? Speaking of this, of this joy, then, uh, I, I can understand that if I indulge in, in the joy, and I'm going to take this to a purely something happening, like the ice cream. Mm-hmm. Ice cream was wonderful, but this is just great. I had a wonderful experience with the ice cream. And I know that's going to come to an end if I indulge in it. If I indulge in this mm-hmm. But if I'm just trying to be with that and not indulge it, is that going to make it go away quick? I mean, it's going to rise and it's going to cease. Mm-hmm. And if I'm just observing it, it seems like it's going to rise and it's going to cease quicker. <laughs> it's true, I think. But what we don't see is that whipping it up, you know, the kind of uh, glorify the experience of eating ice cream, that that comes at a, there's a cost to that. There's tension involved in that sort of making it last long. We don't get something from nothing, not, at, not in this universe. So if we, that the experience of eating ice cream is what it is, and there's no way to change that. Do you know what I mean? It already is what it is, but we we seemingly change it by kind of creating a story about how wonderful it is, and you know, and it was on sale too, and it's they had my favorite kind, and you know, yeah, and it's like I'm so glad no one is here because I can eat as much as I want and not embarrass myself, and so we can kind of whip it up, but the actual experience is just what it is, you know, the sweetness, the smoothness, the coolness the feeling of it going down. It's just what it is. And anything extra we add, there's an equal and opposite response. So if we do whip up some joy through thinking about it, on the surface there will be joy, but it creates an equal and opposite tension. And that would be fine if it was just equal and opposite, but it's worse than that. Because we've kind of polarized the experience, you know, so we whipped up this idea of, oh, and then we have this sort of equal and opposite, like, oh, it's gone. It's going to end. But even when it's gone then, and all we have left is the negative, what do we do? We work really hard at not feeling that. So we create more tension. So it's like it sets in motion something that just is uh, entangling the heart, bounding up, binding up the heart. Um, because we then, we're not willing to pay What's that? Pay the piper. You know, it's like we've created this backlash. It's going to come. The disappointment. Just as much as we enjoyed having it, we're going to uh, not like not having it when we're done eating it. And so, 
we don't want to go there, and so we create even more tension to avoid feeling what we're feeling. You know, so we repress that feeling, and then it's just, and then in repressing that feeling, we feel kind of empty, you know, because we're not disconnecting from what's going on, which is we're disappointed that our ice cream is gone, and we're not willing to feel that, and then we feel empty, like, because we're disconnected from our life. So what do we do? We seek out another sense experience, right? Like watching TV, you know, and then we do the same thing. We whip up, oh, you know, uh, what's that? Everyone loves Raymond. Oh, it's, everybody loves Raymond is on. You know, it's such a wholesome show. I'm going to see. You know, we kind of, and then it's over. You know, or there's an advertisement, and then we got to repress this. You know, that we're re, all these sort of negative feelings. Like I'm wasting my chance. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> we got the picture. <laughs> Maybe I'm indulging. Maybe I'm indulging in the negativity. <laughs> We're so bad. <laughs> yeah. So embracing or indulging in a joyous experience or a happy experience kicks off a cycle. Yeah. Oh. That's why you Yeah. Yeah. Whatever we're indulging, if it's negative or pleasant, we're we're kicking off a cycle. Thankfully, the cycles are exhausting, and that tends to be what wakes us up, is that we get exhausted by the, the sort of build-up. Well, think of the word lovesick when, you're emo- when you are infatuated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and we can be paralyzed with fear. I mean, we, we, we know how we run ourselves into the ground, either with attachment, excitement about pleasant experiences, or uh, aversion or fear of unpleasant experiences. Well, I was thinking that question because of what you had said earlier. It wasn't very, wasn't quite clear to me. I understood the anger, Delta's uh, uh, aversion or something, but uh, just previous to that, you had said that we have preferences, or we have mm-hmm. preferences, and you mentioned the fact that. I don't like it when it's hot. I prefer cool, mm-hmm. but it is hot. It is. Uh, I wasn't quite sure how having a preference fit into that, and that was sort of the same. The Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharma Seed dot org slash donate.